All right. Hey, welcome, 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 everybody. First Team America, Patriot Network by Patriots for Patriots across all sides of the aisle and from all walks of life. Got a great guest here today, uh, Matt Kubler. Uh, awesome guy. Can't wait for you to hear his story. Uh, you can catch Matt at mattkubler.com. That's M-A-T-T-C-U-B-B-L-E-R.com. Matt, I tell you, thanks for uh, for joining us today. Just so much to talk about, so many things going on uh, for our audience. Matt has done so much work on studying a uh, very suspicious death that occurred in the Afghanistan. A friend of his actually went to school with, and um, Matt has just poured so many research hours into this. But before we jump into that, let's hear more about Matt and all the great things he's, he, he does. I don't know how you have time for all that stuff, Matt, but Matt, if you would just introduce yourself and tell us uh, uh, who is Matt Kubler. Wow. Well, first of all, always a pleasure to be with you, buddy. Um, you know, I, I, I think we have the same belief systems and mindsets and, and values, which, which makes having conversations like this a whole lot easier when you know that you're, you're talking to someone who, who kind of gets where you're coming from. Um, my background, I'm 50, married to the love of my life, Lauren. We've been together for 20, married 24 years, together 27. We have two beautiful children, Rebecca, 23, who's a six-time All-American swimmer and four-time NCAA academic All-American. I love bragging about her. Um, she is now wow. a special needs, uh, special education teacher. And my son, Andrew, is graduating high school and going to University of Maryland on an ROTC scholarship where he will be uh, ultimately a lieutenant in the United States Army and serving his country just like I did. Um, I've been a police officer for coming up on 28 years. Wow. Um, it's, uh, I'm very proud that I chose this career, but I'm very ready to get out of it. <laughs> um, prior to that, I was an Army intelligence um, analyst for uh, four years, Persian Gulf War veteran, and uh, you know, just an all around mentally active guy and physically active guy. I have to do many different things. I, I founded a company back in 2010 called Max Out, which was at the time a, a fitness gym business where we had multiple gyms using a piece of technology that we had bought from the inventor called the Max Out Tower. Over the last 11 years, we're no longer a gym business. We're just an equipment manufacturing company and we hold uh, up on four patents on uh, what's called eccentric strength training, meaning your body can hold and lower more weight than it can lift. So you could lower somebody off a cliff with a rope easier than you could pull them back up. Your body's just designed to withstand against gravity, withstand against force much greater than it is being able to move against it. We have technology that allows our um, strength coaches and, and people in the fitness industry to get athletes and soldiers and people with neuromuscular neuro neurological disease stronger, quicker by adding eccentric overloading meaning putting more weight on the human body than what it typically would get in any traditional strength training. That's intriguing. So that's that's intriguing. On the side. Yeah. That's me in a nutshell. Oh, and I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't plug my book. Yeah. <laughs> Brothers Love a Memoir that awesome. I wrote in 20, um, 2006. Um, it's a tribute to my brother, Andy. Um, it's our life growing up in the 70s and 80s. And my brother, Andy, was autistic and uh, had a severe stutter and sadly was killed in a car accident in 1989. And uh, the book details our life together and then how his death impacted my life and created the person you see today. Oh, wow. Where can they get your book, Matt? They can go on the website, but they can also get on Amazon or Barnes Noble or anywhere else online books are sold. 
Right. And the name of your, your podcast, Two Dates and a Dash, and you're on all the major uh, uh, podcasting uh, platforms, correct? Yeah, it's, uh, that, that's a passion of mine is doing podcasting. I didn't know it would be a passion of mine until I was trying to go into the speaker world. I was doing a lot of speaking, um, sharing my brother's story and just how to overcome tragedy and getting through depression and all the things that I went through after he died. And people were wanting to know more about that and learn more about my brother. And it's an amazing story. And one I love telling every day that, that I get a chance to, but um, I was trying to get into the speaker world and they're like, Oh, in order to become a speaker, you have to have a book. I'm like, check. I got one of those. And they're like, Oh, and you need to uh, build your, your brand, go on podcasts. I'm like, what's a podcast? So yeah. I never listened to them. I didn't, I thought they were just recorded radio shows that lived on the radio stations website. I didn't know it was an actual thing. So I started going on podcasts and I did 18 or 19 um, guest appearances before I ever even decided to do one because I wanted to find out what the podcasting world was about, A, B, what type of styles there are out there as far as the type of podcast. And I was on everyone from, they give you five questions at a time. Those are the five questions to talk about. And I've been on conversational ones. I've been on ones where they ask one question and sit back and let you talk for 30 minutes. It, it's, it's been a wide range. And what I found out is I really enjoy having a conversation Yeah, and learning about people and just seeing where things go naturally in a conversation. So two dates in a dash was created. Um, and I, the reason I chose that title is I used to be Tim Tebow's bodyguards. You can see in the background, his Jersey frame, a couple of them. Um, yeah. I was his bodyguard. And that was one of his favorite poems was called the dash. And it basically talks about how your life is made up of two dates, the date you're born, the date you die, and the dash is the life that you live. And that resonated with me when, when I was working for him and he would talk about those things. And so I thought it'd be a great podcast um, title. And then I just basically have conversations with people who are truly living their dash to the best of their ability, the way God intended. Awesome. Yeah, I tell you what, he never got a fair shake, did he? I mean, they, it's amazing no, and, and the treatment he received. It's funny when you, when people knowing him as well as I do and knowing his family and knowing his upbringing, I mean, I, I was with him from the time he was a sophomore between his freshman and sophomore year until his second year in, in the pros. And uh, his family is, you know, he's everything. First of all, he's everything you would, you see on TV or you see in the videos. That's who he is. It's not a shtick. I can tell you many professional athletes, it's a shtick for him. It's not, it's who he is. I remember the, so I'll give you a quick, Bob Tebow, Tim's dad. First day I met him. So I'm a cop in a town where there's a, a small division three liberal, art, liberal arts school. It's called Ursinus College. And I walk up to Mr. Tebow, introduce myself. And he says, tell me about yourself, Matt. And his old Southern Florida, Northern Florida, Southern draw that he has. And I tell him what I do and told him I'm a cop. And I said, where? And I told him where? And he goes, Ursinus College. And I went, how in the heck do you know about Ursinus College? It's got 1,400 students in the middle of nowhere in Pennsylvania. Like, how do you know about that? He goes, I know everything about who's involved in my son's life. He goes, Dan Mullen, who at the time was the offensive coordinator for Florida, played football at Ursinus, graduated from Ursinus, and now is the head coach of Florida today, but at the time was Tim's offensive coordinator. So when he said he knows everything about his involvement in his son's life, he wasn't lying. He knew yeah. everything about everybody. Wow. So, but, but Tim is one of those guys that um, when it came to football, especially in the pros, 
he was so polarizing as a person, as a figure, as a pop culture guy, as a spiritual, religious person, that no matter where he would have went, if he was not the starting quarterback, it would have created more drama in, in a positive and negative way for that organization, which is not what they want. They don't want right. the backup quarterback being the most popular player on the team. Sure. And, and against him was he was a left-handed quarterback who threw like a pitcher. And he was not orthodox. He, he did things kind of on the fly and, and the physical specimen, but didn't check off all the boxes for a program, a pro program that they would put their hitch their horse to. Yeah. There's no doubt in my mind he would have won. Yeah. That he was going to be a winner. He may not have had the greatest stats in the world. He might, but he would have led teams to victories. Certainly. I agree with you on that one. So, so Matt, before we jump into talking about the, uh, the Afghanistan deal, uh, Commander Joe Price, T- tell me a bit about if you if you can share it. I don't want to uh, go down this topic if, if it's if it's not conducive uh, or uh, for you at this moment. But I mean, obviously, you you're you're a police officer. What's the what's the feeling out there at this present time? Just nationally, or, or yeah, a, yeah, whatever whatever yeah. You, you'd like to share. Or well, so um, number one, it sucks being yeah. a cop. Um, today. And, and it's, it's gradually gotten suckier over the last four, four and a half years. Um, I believe that there are enemies at work within our government, within our country, who have control over the volume, volume button on information. And, and that has increasingly created an environment where police officers are no longer um, safe to do their jobs, meaning that they're, they're a target, but also they're not safe to do their jobs because of the ability for the volume to be raised and lowered based on the narrative that the, the controlling parties want the world to hear. Right. So I'll give you an example. The narrative of police are killing unarmed black men at a pandemic level rate is just simply fundamentally not just false, but a flat out lie. Exactly. And statistically speaking, and we'll use 2020, I don't have the exact stats um, as, as they break down, but 2020, there were 1,021 police homicides. And I use the word homicide because that's the technical term. People get all worked up and they hear homicide because there's TV shows, homicide, like it's this homicide is simply the the death of another person caused by another. Right. That's all homicide is. It doesn't yeah. mean it was justified or not justified. It just means that someone died at the hands of another person. Murder is when someone intentionally kills another human being, and that's a crime. Homicide is not a crime. Homicide is a technical term, a medical term. So there were 1,021 homicides by police in the country. Now, Put that in perspective. There are roughly 300 some million police civilian contact annually a year, roughly throughout any given year. And that includes, you know, 911 hangups, alarm calls, um, helping people in a good way, arresting people, whatever. There are 10 million arrests in 2020. 
So 10 million people were arrested. So that doesn't mean they're all violent, but the potential for someone being violent is much higher when they're being arrested than when they're not being arrested. And out of those 10 million, 1,021 were shot and killed or were somehow killed by police. Out of those 1,021, 18 were black. Eight, 18 were, were unarmed and black, I should say. I believe it was 18 or 19. So that means that they were not armed with a lethal weapon at the time they were shot and killed. That doesn't mean they're not lethal. That doesn't mean that they weren't able to kill you. That just means that at that moment they were unarmed. Right. The percentage of people who are killed unarmed by police who are black is like 0.00024%. And we burnt down cities. We did billions of dollars in property damage. Small businesses were closed. Buildings were boarded up. Black communities were terrorized because of 0.00024%. And, and I may be completely yep. off on that, but it's three zeros I know after to the right of a decimal point. I know that much. And yet there are 4,000 people who have died from COVID vaccines. Right. And we're told that that's okay. Those 4,000 deaths are not anything to worry about. At a, out of 8 million, or whatever the number is, the, the percentage of numbers is grossly more vaccine death related than it is unarmed black police related. Right. And right. It, where I find the most frustration is the level of um, cherry picking that is done where people get to pick and choose when they're, they're outraged over death. Exactly. And, and when that's the case, that's when you lose me. You either don't like unnecessary death, period, or you just don't care. Exactly. You don't get the luxury to pick when that is 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 infuriating or wrong or egregious or whatever the term you want to use. You you hit the nail on the head, and thank you with sharing with that. You know, one of the biggest things you mentioned the volume. Those who get to select the volume, that's it. Um, I in, in, from from my opinion, I think hate hate crime charges. Uh, devalue the lives of others based upon them not fitting that category. All lives are the same, uh, meaning the value of what you make of it's your choice. But when they start assigning these uh, extra charges for what they want to call a hate crime, uh, it just devalues the the other races. It's, I've never seen a time like this, Matt, in which the media was so willing to fan the flames, whether it was uh, uh, you know, already seeking to hang people before they even had their just day in court, influencing the jury selections, uh, trying to let out information that they want to have. Um, it's, it's just despicable. Uh, I can't wait to see the Kenosha kids trial. And I think that guy fought like a lion, you know, whether or not he should have been there. My question goes back to people when they ask me that, should the rioters been there burning stuff down? Absolutely not. So, um, I, but I tell you, what I, what I saw recently over the weekend was a video from, I believe it was uh, Plano, Texas. I don't, I don't know if you saw that. If you did, let me, let me know. But you had BLM blocking an interstate in Texas. And this one guy gets out of the car and he's pissed because he's probably got places to go. Who knows where he was going? Could have been the hospital, could have been a grocery store, wherever. But these people shut down the freeway and then they have the Plano police standing to the side. Well, he gets out. Suddenly the BLM wants to go at him. He pushes one back 
and the cops actually defending BLM. I'm sitting there scratching my head going, wait a minute, you can't stop traffic. And it's just, I think it's just, uh, nobody knows what's going on at this moment. It's just, but my point being, Matt, I think the long-term effect of where the Dems and these authoritarian liberals want to take this is they want to break down and destroy the existing police framework and bring in their brown shirts, Antifa-style policing, just like Stalin did with the Bolsheviks. And we cannot allow that to happen. Your comments? Yeah, I mean, history does always repeat itself. It's just that we're too fucking stupid sometimes to, exactly. to, to care or, or, or do the research or read a book. Um, and the Bolsheviks is, is probably the closest, the, the Bolshevik revolution and, and the details on how the plan was hatched and created years before and implemented is, is probably as close to today as you can find. Um, you know, Hitler, similar... Um, but but there are some mild discrepancies. I think the Bolshevik Revolution was pretty much lockstep with what we're seeing today. The Plano incident um, infuriated me. Yeah. Um, number one, infuriated infuriated me because that police officer was put in a position where he had to make that choice wrongly, in my opinion. But he was put in that position based on orders given to him by someone in, in greater authority. Yep. Than he and and in a world where you know. I'd, I'm not necessarily a conforming human being, but I've chosen a profession for 32 years, including my military time, to be in a rules, order, discipline-driven professions. Um, I've made them work more for me than me for them. But in those types of situations where that officer was in, you get put into a position where you have to make a decision on, oops, on, uh, on what you find to be more important to you, your paycheck or your principles. And, and not everybody chooses principles. Not everybody has the intestinal fortitude or the confidence to know that no matter what, and, and this is just, I, I preach this to the kids that I mentor, whatever you do in life, never be stuck. Never be in a position where you don't have outs, that you don't have next moves, that you don't have alternative ways to create revenue. Right. Amen. I tell every cop, no matter whether you end up with a, with a pension or not, you have a skill set that someone will pay top dollar for on some level that you can then go make money on. So you are never stuck. We get stuck into the pension component because that is what we work for. That's our carrot at the end of the 25 years or however long you work is that, that pension, that, that money that comes to you every month where you don't have to get up and go earn it. And that's a beautiful thing. But at some point in time, when you're put in a position where you have to make a choice between right and wrong based on your principles and you choose your pension, I am sad that that's where we are today as a society, is that the right choice is to enforce the law and to ensure that the greater good is served, not the 1%, that the Law states you can't block a highway right. or stop someone else's freedom of movement or limit their constitutional uh, liberties. Yet we are defending those who do just that. Exactly. And when you remove someone else's constitutional freedoms in order to, to appease someone else's or what you perceive to be someone else's, because that, actually that's not their constitutional liberty is not to block a highway. Um, right to assemble does not include breaking the law. 
Exactly. Exactly. No matter how you look at it. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, I, I agree with you. That's a great point that his supervisors probably put him in that position. Um, you know, over the weekend or was was it last week? We're in Portland, the lawless area of the of the U.S., one of the many. Uh, I'm sure you saw the video where they're blocking the roads, pointing ARs at people in vehicles. Uh, we've got multiple uh, uh, violations with that. And uh, uh, speak to that a bit. What are your thoughts on that particular scenario? Well, anytime you have weapons presented, yeah, it creates it creates this this uh, magic concoction of fight, freeze, or flight. Yep, and it's different for every person. And you know, it's no different than than you know, if I'm not wearing a mask out in public, and somebody with a mask comes up and approaches me, and tries to to virtue signal shame me <laughs> into complying, I may not. I you know I may be a, a, a milk toast, soy milk pussy who goes, oh, I'm so sorry I offended you and put my mask on. Or I might be the guy that breaks your nose. You don't know, right? You don't know which side I'm on. Exactly. But you've made the decision to make that choice and approach me. Well, the same thing happens when somebody pulls a gun on somebody or points an AR-15 or what I believe to be AR-15 that shoots real bullets and not maybe some airsoft gun or or a, a look-alike BB gun or whatever they, but their intention is for me to believe that it's a real gun. Well, I may be the guy that puts my hands up and go, please don't hurt me. Or I may be the guy that blows your face off. Right. You never know which side that's going to be on. And when you allow for that to happen, unchecked, unenforced, I talked about this um, in several lives I did. Over the course of the summer, when there were riots all across our country, on any given night, any night, for as many nights as there were riots, there were thousands of felonies that were committed. And none of them were enforced. Exactly. Imagine that. Felonies. Yeah. yeah. They were Fucking... letting people out of prison to do it. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I've never seen that. Cops. Yeah. Throw, throw shit balloons and piss balloons and other you know, liquids Acid. that we don't know what they are. Yeah. Absolutely. Those are felonies that were un- Exactly. And when you allow the goons to go unchecked, they become emboldened. And when they become emboldened, they start to pack up like herds of dogs, wild dogs. And when they get together, they become stronger. Individually, they're weak-ass pussies, but together, they're actually pretty formidable. And if you don't have the skill set or the training or the understanding or the background to handle that, that's who they're looking for. They're looking for the weak ones that are going to go, I'm so sorry, I didn't know, or... I, I understand what you're angry about. Please don't hurt me. I'll let you do what you need to do in order to get this out of your system so you can feel better about your uh, your fight against the man. And then there's some that are just going to be like, you know, Kyle Rittenhouse who shows up with <laughs> AR-15. He's trying to help people. And then you come at him and he kills two of you. Like that's going to be a, a, that's a byproduct of allowing chaos to go unchecked because then you have people that decide I'm no longer going to trust my government or my law enforcement or anyone else to control this mob mentality. I'm going to go in and do something about it myself. And that's what happened. Yeah, no, no doubt. No doubt. They, you know, the authority, not when I say the authorities, the city managers, the mayors, the city councils are all complicit in this in allowing these, these things to fester. I, I still can't get over the fact and I met, um, I'll flash back a little bit 
I was at a uh, uh, an event not too long ago, and I met uh, uh, a uh, soon to be retiring DHS guy, real great guy. Met a lot of good LE guys there, and uh, we got to talking. And I asked him, I said, uh, "Man, what is what is going on?" And uh, he shook his head. I said, "How in the hell does uh, uh, the people standing outside the Capitol in DC that didn't go in the building suddenly losing jobs and other things yet?" Uh, you look at Portland, where they firebombed the courthouse, took over a police station, uh, created an autonomous zone. We haven't heard squat from that. And I said, what really, what really makes me makes me uh, uh, angry is the fact that uh, all along with the apparatus, with the state fusion centers, the DIA, CIA, NSA, blah 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 blah, and the and the capturing of cell signal, e cell phone, text, email, web chat, Snapchat, social media, did not pick up of the movement of supplies and rioters across state lines and the orchestration for a lot of these events. Give me a fucking break. You know, sorry, I cuss on my podcast, man, because I don't try to hold back. So excuse me, but. I'm sitting there going, you got to be kidding. And the guy looked at me and he shook his head and he goes, dude, it is so corrupt. It is so corrupt. And, and he said, I cannot wait to retire in about a year and a half, two years. He's, and I said, you know, what really, what, what I'd really like to know is since when did the Fed start deciding what, what uh, uh, criminal codes are going to enforce with regards to having Hunter Biden's laptop for two years and never acting on it or, or, Anthony Weiner's laptop and never doing anything, or Hillary Clinton's use of a unauthorized home server to conduct national graft and business. And uh, he just shook his head. He goes, it, it is absolutely corrupt. It's a, uh, and it, it's, you know, there's, there's a, a larger umbrella over the, of corruption over the federal government, but trust me when I tell you, corruption goes all the way down to local. Oh yeah. Counties and school boards and everywhere else. I mean, it's, it's a concerted effort to start at the very bottom on the left side and create that 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 level of of disharmony, disruption, uh, mistrust, sure. and then flip it around and blame the people that they're actually causing it to for the problem. And that you know, we live in a bizarre world where where the opposites are 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 what's real, up is down, left is right, in is out, good is bad. Um, you know, they're all in verses and it's the mirror effect and you know when we talk about job we'll talk about how they do that very well within the navy seal community certainly <laughs> and it's it's this um when and, and i'll be honest with you that's when i really woke up you know i always knew in, in my head i and that you know your head's in the sand on what you don't want to be true but you know is um what became crystal clear to me is that when i saw what happened to job and then dug deeper into many other similar type incidents um, and the level of coordination in the cover-ups and in the criminality and in the corruption um, proved to me that it, it had to be bigger than just that because of why is it allowed to exist for so many decades? Why is it allowed to, to grow and become a, a brand, uh, a cartel for lack of a better word? Sure. Because someone in the federal government of allowing it to continue. Exactly. I worked in Intel. I worked in Intel Collection, SIGINT. I can tell you there is nothing that doesn't get intercepted. There's nothing, exactly. there's, there's, you know, if, if Facebook can block all my videos with an algorithm, 
and have me banned, they can find any phone call, any text, any page, any, you know, whatever that would be controlling the movement of bricks to the corner of, of an intersection in Washington, D.C. or Portland or anywhere else. They know about that. There's, you can, and they have the algorithm set up so that they can collect and then and get that to a, an analyst to see and look at to determine whether or not it is or isn't a threat to national security or other people's lives that, that exists and has existed for decades. And the fact that it's happening and it's going unchecked is the same mechanism that's allowing mobs to run rampant, commit felonies and go unchecked. Sure. Do you it's remember? the same mechanism. Yeah. Do you remember during, I think it was Portland when the, the, they were shown in the autonomous zone, handing out ARs, uh, AR rifles and other weapons. And, and suddenly there's a lot of great people in the ATF. There's, there's some bad guys too, but suddenly there's no movement or at least movement we saw with, Hey, what WTF that's on American soil. They're handing out weapons to people that may be felons and stuff. What, where's the response? And this was during Trump's time too. So what was amazing to me, uh, Matt, was was even though I like Trump, I still I still am not a worshiper. And I often wondered how his agencies were so impotent versus the Dems that suddenly can ratchet up. Hey, anybody at the Capitol, I want you to start going out questioning them. You know, let's get them fired. Let's let's make them scared. Let's go raid a bed and breakfast in uh, Alaska where the girl looks like somebody that ha may have Lance, Nancy Pelosi's laptop. But Never, ever, and you said it well, have I seen such a breakdown of the rules, order, and discipline of what is enforced and what is not. It's, it's just, uh, again, I'm, I'm pointing it to the Bolshevik-type thing that we're going to see a recurrence of under this Biden administration, unfortunately. Well, you know, you got to hope and pray that, you know, one thing I, I tell people all the time, and, and listen, I, I, I am not a trump -er. I voted for him twice. Um, I would vote for him again. I believe in in his the, the gift that he has the most of is his ability to to lead a business, and whether we want to call it or not, the United States government is a business that doesn't make or contribute to anything, but it is a business um, because there's just so many levels of management and and hierarchy that that need to have someone overseeing. But I believe the greatest gift we got was Donald Trump not being reelected. Oh, really? The reason I say that, is yes, because I believe that if he would have been reelected, would you and I and our businesses and our, our paychecks and gas prices and uh, trade and, and infrastructure, would that all have been better? Absolutely. But I think the only way, and I said this many times over over the last 15, 16 months, the only way that you clean house and the way you get out the, take out the trash or remove the cancer is to expose it and bring it to light. And if Donald Trump was in office, there would be this constant cloak of obscurity that the left could operate under because they could always deflect their masses to pay attention to the tweets of Donald Trump or the, the comments he makes in his press conferences or whatever. Whatever Donald Trump bad, orange man bad, evil man grabber by the pussy guy, whatever whatever they could deflect the attention to while they're doing their dirty work right. was their, their cloak of secrecy, the way that they could operate in, in plain sight in the shadows. And when you remove that, when you remove that, that blanket, that, that wet blanket, that, that uh, cloak of 
redirection from their blueprint, it exposed them for who they are. I can't tell you how many Democrats that I know who voted for Donald, voted for um, Joe Biden because they hate Donald Trump. We're now going, what in the fuck did we just do? Yeah. A lot of union guys are saying that or people. Uh, yeah. And especially, you know, that are on the, the Keystone pipeline. I mean, the, just look at that. The first things, if you just, if I were a democratic strategist and I was in charge of Joe Biden's first hundred days in office, I would have never in a bazillion years said, Hey, let's go bananas and undo everything that the last administration did and do a shit ton of executive orders and, and do things that are just completely off the rails. But I'm glad they did. I'm glad he did all those things because the only way that it's going, we're going to shift. I mean, if you just think about it, we went from having a bunch of people afraid to admit that they're conservatives to having a hundred million people are going, fuck you. I'm conservative. Right. Right. That's true. Gigantic shift. Yeah. Now there's a hundred million out of 330 million people who are going, dude, I am 100% conservative, pro-America, America first, constitutionalist, whatever. Those people are loud and proud now where they were quiet as mice. And now the left is going, yeah. how do we regain our power back? That's, yeah. And they can't. In the environment we're in, it is even the, the left supporting communist media can't put a lip, enough lipstick on this pig <laughs> to make it look like anything other than a pig. Sure. Well, it, and that segues into into some of the uh, into the the Job Price conversation. You know what what in, what mystified me was when Trump pardoned or got in the Eddie Ga- the seal Eddie Gallagher issue in case. Uh, what what it basically showed is you had a number of seals that knew about him that that spoke up and later were vilified for speaking up, and uh, they browbeat them back and castigated them, and I'm sure they faced other reprisals we haven't been aware of, but you look at uh, uh, what some know about Mr. Gallagher's actions over there, and and uh, and then you have Trump stepping in. I think Trump really suffered from a lot of bad voices that he took for counsel that were either put there deliberately or they, they aligned themselves, but he sure did suffer from a number of bad counsel amongst his time there. But in, in looking at that, let's let's jump into the Joe Price conversation. For a lot of people that don't know, give, give some of the backstory on 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 uh, Commander Price and uh, what what you've done with your research. So Joe and I went to high school together. Um, we're in the same classes. Both um, had appointments to military academies. I ended up not going to the Coast Guard Academy, enlisted in the Army. He went to the Air Force Academy when we graduated. Graduated from there, uh, transferred his commission to the Navy and became a Navy SEAL. Um, yeah, we, we weren't best friends. We were in all the same classes. We were classmates, we were friends in school, um, but I wasn't you know, hanging out with him out of school or anything like that. So I didn't have an emotional um, connection to him um, outside of the fact that we knew each other for a long time. So when he died in 2012, um, December 22nd, 2012, he was found dead in, in Afghanistan in his bunk. And now you gotta, people, people need to realize what the environment is like over there. He was the highest ranking person at the time to ever die in theater during the Iran, Iraq, uh, Iraq, Afghanistan. That's a big deal. When somebody of that higher rank, he was the commander of SEAL team four, like the big dog 
running an entire team, running an entire operation, an entire theater, an area of, of Afghanistan where his guys were responsible for dealing with the mullahs, dealing with the, 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 the Taliban, like working with all these people. And that was his responsibility. And Job was always a goofy, uh, happy-go-lucky, super, super, super smart. Um, we, we were always challenging one another academically, um, but he was just always way smarter than me. Um, great, like he's like the Boy Scout. Like I always said, he was the white knight. He was the, he was the guy that usually always did the right thing, always had fun doing things, but, but always was doing the right thing. Never was mean to people. He didn't bully anybody. Was, you know, he was a, a stud football player, stud wrestler, um, but didn't walk around like I was Billy Badass at school. Um, but when he died, I remember thinking, suicide? Really? Joe wouldn't, the, the guy I know was just way too involved in life to want to leave it. And we had seen each other over, you know, the course of 20 years. Multiple times we'd come home. There's a local bar we all hang out at when we're, when we're in town and, and, you know, we would see each other there. And he was always still the same guy, but you could tell he had a little bit of, of, of baggage that he had, um, carried with him based on just the sheer nature of the job of being a SEAL and the type of work they do in the special operations community. It, you, know, you see things and do things that maybe um, stick and stay for a while, but he never showed any wear and tear from that on an emotional level where you would think he's just unstable. So when I saw that and when I heard about that, the first thought is there's no way. And again, I didn't have, know anything about the SEAL community. I didn't know have, have any intel on anything. I just thought it was odd that he would kill himself. And I was always waiting for something else to come out that would vindicate that, like that there would be some information that was gleaned that, um, or why he killed himself, because there was no note or anything like that. And, you know, his best friend who I, I was friends with, um, there was no, uh, I, yeah, I, I saw something was wrong and, and I wish I would have said something, nothing. There was no indicators that there was any suicidal thought. So. Fast forward to 2018 and I'm starting my podcast and doing my podcast and I had an opening for a guest and I put on Facebook, anybody know anybody that wants to be a guest on my show? I have a last minute opening. Someone, mutual friends of ours recommended Job's sister, Bronwyn. So I messaged her and I said, hey, would you like to come on and talk about Job and the stuff you're doing with the Travis Mannion Foundation in his honor and helping other vets, families, gold star families, things of that nature. She goes, oh yeah, I'd love to, that'd be great. Over the course of the next five days, it turned into the switch from being a, a sharing stories about Job and what she's doing in honor of him to, can you take a look at what happened to my brother and in her father's case, my son. So I went over to the house, the parents' house and they gave me the, uh, the murder book or the suicide book or the death book, whatever you want to call it that NCIS and Army CID compiled on Job's death. Now, I, like I said, I've, I've been a cop for a long time. I've investigated hundreds, if not thousands of deaths. Um, I know what a good investigation looks like. I know what the rules and procedures are. I know what the steps you take in a crime scene. I understand evidence collection and evidence preservation. Um, I know, understand crime scene security. I understand all that. And it's, it's pretty much the same across the board in law enforcement. It's not the Navy does it one way and local Pennsylvania does it one way and California does it one way. The rules are pretty much universal across the board for all crime scene investigations, especially deaths. 
So I told him, yeah, I'd take a look at it. And I mind you, I had like two days to prepare for this podcast. And the whole podcast was going to be on what happened to Job on December 12th, 2012, December 22nd, 2012. Um, and when I got into the thousands of pages of, of information, I started to see a pattern of ineptitude. And I saw a crime scene investigation that was so bad that no one in law enforcement from the lowest level law enforcement officer who's had the training to the most seasoned would ever look at, look at that case and go, that was handled properly at I, any step. Sure. From step one, it was broken. Step one. Yeah. And that's when you start off broken, when the whole process breaks down from the first decision you make, everything from that point forward, it's like a domino effect. You can't undo the break. And, and, you know, as a, as a, you know, if I were to arrest, say this was murder, which I believe it was, in order for me to prove someone did that, I have to show how that crime scene was handled. How was it secured? Was there a list? Who all went in? What all was touched? What did the room look like when you first came in? Photographs, like all of the stuff that you're supposed to do in order to be able to prove later on that somebody did it was not, was not done. And my theory in the beginning was, boy, these NCIS guys are fucking retarded. They don't know how to do anything. As I got into this more, it shifted from maybe they did that intentionally. Hmm. Maybe this was intentionally done so badly to make it look like they were inept when in actuality they were doing a cover-up. And that's where I am today. I believe it was a cover-up. I believe that I know you got to ask questions. No, no, no. Go ahead. Cause I want to hear your thought on that. Keep your thought. You know, I was brought into this, this world, not wanting it. I certainly have. You know, and, and like I said in the beginning, I don't have an emotional attachment to Joe. He was a friend, a classmate, but he wasn't somebody that I was super tight with. We, you know, his death didn't traumatize me for months and years and, it's sad he died. I knew him and, and I thought he was a hero. And he served his country valiantly. And he left behind a wife and child and a sister and a father and a mother. But I wasn't emotionally destroyed by this, by his death. I just right. Wasn't. So I'm not coming at this when they asked me to do this from a high school classmate perspective. I'm coming at it from a law enforcement investigator perspective and from a investigative journalist perspective. And I'm going, all right, if there's, if there's you know, meat on the bone here for, for something other than suicide, then I want to see what that is. Right. And, and in order to do that, you got to come at it from a, almost like a, uh, a clinical perspective. You know, I do everything in a triage. You know, what is the most important thing I got to look at and then work my way down to the least important. And when you're looking at a, a suicide where it's, you know, you, I'll give you the, the landscape of what, type of structure he was in when they're saying he committed suicide. So these are concrete and metal um, that hold, you know, 10 guys, maybe. And they're individual rooms, but they have, you know, metal dividers between them. Um, you know, you fart, you're going to hear it at the other end of the hall. Exactly. You're talking, you're going to hear the conversation. It's just, it's an echo chamber. And you know, Job allegedly used his service weapon, um, un, 
muted, unsilenced, to shoot himself in the right temple while he was laying on his side, naked in his bunk, in his uh, sleeping bag, which, mind you, um, every night of his life, Job slept naked. Job slept on the left side of his body. Job slept with the pillow in the crook of his arm like this, with the pillow sort of on his hand and just sort of bent underneath his arm. Every night, I validated that from his family and from his wife. That's the position he was found dead in. That's that's the position he was in when he was when the bullet entered his body. I've investigated hundreds, if not thousands, of deaths. I can tell you, I've never investigated a suicide where somebody was in the exact position they slept in every single day of their life, and decided at that moment that's when they're going to kill themselves. That's the thing that stood out the most to me. Yeah, was that he was he was in bed in the position he sleeps in naked in his bunk in a echo chamber with an unsilenced weapon and nobody heard a gunshot yeah i i found that just unlikely it's, it's impossible yeah number one number two the minute he was found in his bunk to the time the first ncis agent arrived was minutes you know, maybe 15, 20 minutes. They verified that he was dead. Well, first of all, multiple SEALs went into the room prior to the NCIS being called just to supposedly to validate each other's belief that he is dead, um, clearly dead, um, based on crime scene photos. Um, the NCIS agent and the master chief, senior master chief, go into the room. NCIS agent validates that he's dead, doesn't take any notes, doesn't Take any photographs, doesn't do any detailed description of the room state when he walked in. Simply validated the master, senior master chief's um, findings. And then they lock the door. And the NCIS agent then gives the key back to the senior master chief and says, don't let anybody in here. That's literally the worst crime scene security decision you can make. Exactly. To allow somebody who's potentially a suspect to have unfettered access for almost nine hours before they came back and started to do the work on the crime scene. There was a time period of nearly nine hours. That's incredible. From when he locked the door and gave the key to the senior master chief to when NCIS agents came back and began to work the room. That's a key point that what the audience should, the yeah, the audience should realize. You're, as, as Matt said before, one of the highest ranking U.S. military officers killed at this point in Iraq and Afghanistan. And the NCIS guy doesn't station a couple base MPs at that door immediately. What, they don't have radios anymore? I mean, it's just, it, it makes no sense. But please continue. It's protocol. Yeah. That's just the protocol. The protocol is the minute you establish a crime scene, it is secured by law enforcement. Right. No one's in or out that isn't authorized to be there. They sign a log sheet that says, okay, John Smith came in, Don Wright came in, Matt Kubler came in. They were here for this long. They, they came in at this time, left at this time. What was their responsibility? Uh, evidence collection, photographing, whatever. That's all put onto a crime scene log. The minute you lose control of the security of a crime scene and the continuity of the evidence that might be in that room, you lose everything. It's like fruit of the poisonous tree. If I legally search your house and find 10 dead bodies and 500 pounds of cocaine, none of that is admissible because the initial search was done illegally. 
the same thing. Everything that followed that decision to not secure that crime scene properly tainted everything that followed. Sure. And that had to be intentional. Uh, you couldn't yeah. be that inept. And then to top it all off, when they did the investigation, when they started to work the room, they started to take photographs and collect evidence, an entire disc worth of photographs, a disc, this is 2012 now, we're not, everything was on SD cards back then. Nothing had to be on a disc. An entire disc of photographs and no digital copy exists was ruined. There was no SD card or file on a, on a laptop that contained all of the photos. That one disc and that disc showed the photographs of the wall to the side in which the fire, the gunfire came from. So Job was laying on his left side, shot himself, according to them, with his right hand while he was sleeping. Um, and if you know anything about uh, gunshot residue or, or splatter patterns or anything like that, there is a, an ex expenditure of gas that goes out of gun and then it hits something that's solid that then has a you know, liquid in it and then there's a blowback. Exactly. That, that blowback would be on the wall behind him, which was maybe a foot and a half behind him. That pattern would be very indicative of whether or not it was, you would be able to tell whether or not somebody shot themselves or somebody shot them in that position, which would have to be behind him in order to get that angle of a, a shot. Those pictures were lost. So I have no idea what that wall looked like. Secondly, Job's hand, the hand in which they're saying he shot himself with, had three or four mini micro dots of blood on his knuckles. I can tell you that it, had he shot himself, his hand would have been, and up his arm would have been sprayed with blowback, blowback blood. Because it was a contact wound. It was a contact wound to his temple. The amount of blowback that would just come from the gas trying to get away and then whatever... Um, liquid inside of his brain, his head would blow back. Right. It would be all over his arm. It was not there. And then finally, he was found lying on his back with his head facing to the right, which is the direction from which the bullet entered, and the gun still in his hand neatly placed across his chest. I've done as many studies and research as I possibly can. There is a way that it happens. But there's a, bio, there's a bodily positioning that you need to be in, in in order for it to happen where you are still holding the gun. Right. There are certain, there are certain, um, if your arm's in a certain position, it's going to fall a certain way simply by gravity and by biomechanical, the way the arm works or the hand works or the leg works or whatever. Um, there's certain things that would have to be in, in perfect place for that positioning to happen. And the way that he shot himself is not one of them. The angle of trajectory from the bullet entry into the right side of his temple, through the left side of his temple, through his pillow, through his mattress to the floor, indicates that his arm was up in the air, that an arm was coming downward into his temple while he laid on his left side. There was no way biomechanically that his arm could have fallen, let alone with the gun in his hand, where it fell across his chest. Right. It couldn't have happened that way. So one of two things happened. Either he was killed or the crime scene was manipulated and they put the gun in his hand and place it across his chest. I don't know which one is true yet because I haven't had the chance to interview anybody because the Navy won't let me. Um, 
but I can tell you that he didn't, it, you can't, I, I said this um, in an interview once, you can't, you know, the, the crime scene analyst as, as an investigator, I'm trying to create a thousand piece puzzle with a thousand, I wanna get a thousand pieces so I can show that puzzle and in the box looks like the picture on the outside of the box. Right. What the Navy SEALs gave us and, and NCIS gave us was a 150, 250 piece puzzle out of a thousand. And they're trying to tell me that the 250 pieces that we put together looks like the box and it doesn't. I can tell you there's no way you can get from 250 pieces out of a thousand piece puzzle and make it look like what they're telling me it looks like. You just can't. So if you can't get there, if you can't connect the dots enough to show this happened and this happened and this happened, that's why we're calling it this, then you have to label it as inconclusive at best. Right. I'm telling you that there's nothing about a suicide that this, that this says nothing about suicide. This has to do with one of two things, either manipulated crime scene or he was murdered. It's one of those two things. And if we're not going to be allowed to investigate whether or not it was manipulated or if he was murdered, and you're still going to try to sell me that hot, hot hunk of shit that he committed suicide, I'm going to tell you that you can't do that. I can prove that in any court and I can get experts. I have experts, a guy that was the head of the Georgia State Police Crime Lab said there's absolutely no way based on his, and he's, and I'm not a forensic expert. I'm just a free cop who just happened to be in a lot of crime scenes. I can just tell you that if a forensic expert, the head of the entire Georgia State Police says, yes, there's no way he committed suicide. I, I, go ahead, prove me wrong. Exactly. Matt, talk to the other thing. So we talked about you know, the, the botching of it, how long did they wait before they got statements from all the guys that were in the bunk that, that shared the same building? Within 24 hours, they had all the statements. Right. Which is, is abnormal. Um, you know, you don't, and, and, you know, when you read the statement, I read them all. There's a pattern there. You know, yep. There's a lot of similarities in statements. There's a similarities in phraseology. There's similarities in, you know, the description of Job prior to December 22nd. Um, they all seemed very coached, very organized in their answers. And there was no uh, um, individuality as if somebody who may have known Joe more personally than someone else. You know, when you're the commander of a SEAL team, you know, there is, there's a, there's an access level. So, you know, a lowly SEAL isn't going to have access to Job the same, same way as his XO or um, the, the S2 or whoever is in, in the, the talk or the command structure is going to have way more access to Job and have probably more intimate details about Job than someone else. But it appears as if everybody had the same access to Job from the lowly guy to the top, you know, the, the number two guy in the in command. It seemed very odd that they all had very similar um, opinions of Job and thoughts about Job prior to and including the day of his death. Right, right. And the guy, the NCS guy that was with them, was he the guy that was deploying with them? Was that the, uh, uh, that I, individual or was it another one? Yeah, yeah, because then he had to go get more, um, more agents to assist with the crime scene, which was right. the reason why there was this delay. Right. I still call bullshit on that. But, uh, you know, where do you have to go that you can't get somebody to bring the stuff to you. Like, where, where are you the lone NCIS agent in the entire region? And right. If so, that's stupid. Number one, you're, you're with Silton 4. There should be, you know, there's going to be needs for NCIS when, it, when you're in the middle of a combat zone where you're dealing with locals and, and there's um, lots of money 
being brought in and exchanged and handed out and you know, relationships that are being forged through paying off mullahs and paying off tribal leaders in order to get their cooperation. There's a need to have that, that person that's sort of making sure it's all done on, you know, by the book. Sure. Um, and, and, you know, through the multiple additional investigations I've been involved in since Job's, I can tell you that there's been a lot of unchecked action um, that have occurred in that region by SEALs, not just SEAL Team 4, but every SEAL team that has been deployed um, in that region since 2002, on some level has had some sort of a corruption scandal, whether known to the public or unknown, um, on every deployment. Right, exactly. Some of, the people that, some of the people that are being held to the highest standards as, as the, the face of the SEAL brand are the most complicit. Yes, I and that's agree. The, and, and that's the scary part. And that, and that took me to then the mindset and belief that the same people that are controlling who sees what within that SEAL brand community and is covering up the egregiousness of the actions of many over there in portraying the teams as this ultimate elite fighting force, the, the, the protectors of the American way of, of life and truth, justice, and, and, and all that are the same people that are controlling the narrative for BLM, Antifa, the left, um, Joe Biden, AOC, you name it. There's right. the same pattern. So everything as, a, as an investigator and as an, an analyst, um, an army intelligence analyst, everything we did was based on pattern. So when you start to see patterns as an investigator, you can start to connect dots and, and make um, connections between two separate things. You know, if there's a serial killer, there's a pattern to a serial killer's killing. That, you know, the reason why Son of Sam was caught is because there was a pattern to what he did. And the same thing with investigating. I can look at Job's case and, and determine the pattern by which things happen and then look at other cases and see how those patterns exist in every one of those cases too. Sure. And when you see those patterns, that's the, that's the indicator that there's some, some corruption happening. And that if those patterns exist, and I, Mr. Nobody, that's not involved in the SEAL community at all, or in the military NCIS or anything, I'm just some guy that was randomly asked to look at a book and, and now I'm in this thing ankle deep or knee deep, how am I now the only person that can see this? I'm not. I'm just the only one that's allowing it to be known. Exactly. You know, I recall from some of the reviews I did that uh, prior, a couple of days prior to his uh, so-called suicide, that he was visited by Samansky and another individual. Um, for those on the, on the audience that don't know, Samansky's uh, um, involved in several other questionable incidents regarding the Chapman's Ridge uh, and quite a few more. Uh, Chapman's Ridge, if you haven't got that book, please do so. I mean, it is just riveting and it's really surprising to see. And, and Matt, Matt, based upon what you're, you're saying and sharing with us, you can really see the attempts to even uh, downplay, downplay any investigation that would have uh, helped improve the services uh, in, in many different ways, rather than sweeping it under the rug by the higher uh, uh, brass which is what I think we got. But, you know, any, any theories you have on the, uh, what might have been the reason why? Because I still don't accept it either, Matt. I don't believe it was a suicide. It was three days before Christmas. Uh, not knowing Joe, but just knowing the kind of man he, he seemed to be. No father would do that to their kids. No good father 
uh, leave a memory uh, to taint Christmas for the rest of their lives. So your thoughts well, on the theories? Well, yeah, well, we'll go back to where you just started with. Yeah. The Roberts Ridge, where John Chapman was, was um, an Air Force combat controller who uh, was attached in SEAL Team 6 back in 2002. Um, and I believe it was Tacker Gar um, or Tarancote. One of the one, Job was either Tarancote or Tacker Gar, vice versa. I can't remember um, exactly. But in 2002, SEAL Team 6, led by Tim Szymanski. Um, and the team leader on that mission was a guy named Brett Slavinsky, who um, they were going after high value targets in the mountain regions of Afghanistan. They were um, on a mission that was scratched and refused by many other SEAL Team 6 uh, um, squadrons to do because it was just too high risk. I believe it was Blue Team um, that Szymanski ordered to do it. And Slavinsky was in, uh, the team leader for and John Chapman, the Air Force Combat Controller, was attached to, decided to take this mission on. Long story short, um, they're making their approach. Neil Roberts, who was a member of SEAL Team 6, um, had unhooked from his strap. The back of the Huey um, was open. They received um, RPG fire, which ended up being an SA-7, I believe, um, which is a huge difference than an RPG. Um, it knocked the, the helicopter unstable he fell out the back landed on the mountaintop and they had to go and do a loop around and try for another entry got hit again crash landed team is bailed out the back including john chapman um who was first to get out um john um if well for 15 or 16 years it was brit spritz Lebinsky heroically stormed the mountain um to save fallen teammate neil roberts Got and killed a shit ton of Al-Qaeda, Chechen Al-Qaeda fighters who were in fighting positions on the mountain. John Roberts um, assisted him yeah. and died on the mountain with Neil Roberts. And um, for a long time, it was Fritz Lubinsky is, is a hero. Uh, had it not been for an AWACS uh, plane video footage and a drone CIA video footage that they were able to piece together to create a very clear depiction of what happened that shows that actually John Chapman was the one who stormed the mountain. Um, Fritz Lubinsky followed with a couple other guys and John Chapman fought valiantly to save Neil Roberts, was rendered unconscious. Um, more fire was coming in on the seals. They decided to bail didn't check on John Chapman to find out whether or not he was alive or dead. Left him up there. Um, within an hour, he came to. And when the QRF, the members of the special forces that came in to rescue, um, to provide more manpower and rescue the SEAL team, um, John started to draw a fire away from them so they could land and get out. And ultimately he saved 23 people that day. Fritz Lubinsky got a Congressional Medal of Honor prior to John Chapman. And I believe that was done in order to get ahead of it. And if you look at his citation on his Medal of Honor and you read the citation, it's exactly what John Chapman did. Exactly. Fritz Lubinsky did. Right. And then John was got, got his posthumously clearly um, in 2018. And I had his sister, um, Lori on my, my podcast, she's the co-author of Alone at Dawn, which is the best version of, of what happened that day. If you're going to read a book, it's the New York Times bestselling book, Alone at Dawn. 
yeah. um, which is a great book and, and written with facts. Um, so what I believe happened that day and then for the 15 years thereafter was the, the original sin, in my mind, of the, of the current state of the SEAL program. I believe when you, when you tell a lie and you tell a lie enough, it becomes your truth. And I believe Brett Slabinski and Tim Szymanski decided that the um, public relations nightmare that would come from leaving a Air Force combat controller to die on a mountain and fight by himself um, for an hour and, and receive, you know, whatever it was, 20 some wounds before he finally died. And if you watch that video, the narration of it is just brilliant. It makes you cry every time you watch it. Um, that was their reasoning. And the fact that it was a shitty op to begin with. Oh, absolutely. Risky op that didn't need to happen. Yep. You combine all that, it's a bad look for the SEALs. And when they were able to cover it up and, and make it look like Fritz Lubinsky was a hero, then you had a different spin, a different narrative. And they went with that narrative for so long until this video came out, then they were in an oh shit moment. Then it became the fog of war. It became, I don't remember every little detail. It's this whole, over time, you're, you can, the understanding is you're gonna forget small details over time. I can promise you this. I've been in a couple of those situations and I remember every single moment. There's nothing that, that is faded about that. Exactly. So I think the, that was the original sin. I think that's yeah. where Szymanski became who he is and how his then involvement in many other incidents over the course of the last 20 years, including Job's, makes me believe that if he was able to cover that up, why wouldn't he be able to cover this up? That's a great point. So many, so many uh, uh, actions that led to the deaths of men, such as I, I recall from the book, Alone at Dawn, a great riveting story. Encourage everybody to get it from even using a different uh, radio channel. But the first one was avoiding the intel from, I think, some Army Special Forces that were monitoring that mountain saying it's loaded with, with, uh, with, foreign, with fighters. You, you, and what did they choose to do? Land on top of the fucking mountain. You know, it was like a race for glory. There were probably some books to, that were going to be made, some publicity tours, um, you know, it's, it's, it's something, you know, I, I have my own opinions about uh, what you've, or, or that go with what you just said, you know, with when we were fed that line that uh, the guy that's out there taking the credit for killing Bin Laden, he's been doing it for a while. And, and uh, we know that's not the truth. Uh, we know he wasn't the one that first shot, shot Bin Laden, but somehow he's getting the glory. Uh, I think a lot of that stuff, too, I tie, I, we can tie back to the Obama-Biden uh, era, not just them, but others, but, it's, but just show how corrupted and compromised the, the higher up in the military you go, there's a, a thirst for glory. I've heard from others firsthand that have told me in the past that uh, uh, from other uh, branches of the military that did not want to take certain uh, uh, missions with SEALs. And I'm not bad badmouthing all SEALs. There's wonderful guys on those teams and they know who the bad guys are and who the corrupted ones are, but it had really gotten gotten pretty bad. And uh, I agree with you. I think that was the original sin for Szymanski among others that's just led to innocent deaths. And I think he's even still calling the shots down in Florida uh, or still uh, uh, in, embroiled or, or <laughs> involved in some level of planning uh, for SOCOM. I mean, uh, here's a guy that, that uh, made some very bad calls as the, as the one that was in charge at the time. 
that led to multiple deaths. And, and uh, what do they say? Failure is promoted, right? Well, yeah. And, and you know, you got to look at also bloodlines, you know, look where are, who are you intimately connected with? You know, he's, he's got, he's got history with the Clintons and the Bidens. He's got, you know, prior to any of these things happening, you know, the, it's, it's no secret that, you know, the very disgustingly brutal world, the political world, when it comes to how do people get ahead, who gets ahead, who gets contracts, who gets this, it's all based on nepotism. It's all based on pay to play. It's all based on all those things. And, and people who typically are in charge, especially in positions of um, high prominence, like uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff or, um, you know, head of DOD or one of the you know, secretary or whatever, you know, you have, if you have all these, these high rank, there, there's, I can probably give you five or six that have questionable service records that were military who, who um, are now super high up admirals and rear admirals who um, have a lot of questionable decision-making in their background, but because of who they are aligned with, they're protected. And, and, you know, if you can, you know, you can redirect, and that's why I was talking about Trump not being reelected as a gift, is because when you when you remove that protective cloak of deception from the the equation, you're left with an exposed um, entity. And I think whether it's the war on terror, as you, you know, George Bush, who I think is one of the most evil beings on the planet. Yeah, you know. We were led to believe it was about terrorism. It was about protecting America about, from terror. Terror, 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 terror. Whether it's or social distance or wear a mask or we're all in this together. Whatever the term is that they do to mind fuck you into compliance and belief. And I was a victim of that. I'm not going to lie. I'm not. I bought not, into it at that time. I became an air marshal because I saw what happened on 9-11. I'm like, fuck that. Not in my country. And I went and became an air marshal. And, you know, I with some of the greatest people on the planet, know some of the greatest people on the planet. And I would do it all over again because I, I, I'm still proud of the fact that I stepped up and took a stand. Now, whether or not that stand was based on faulty intelligence, I don't, I, I don't I'm not going to judge myself on that decision. But I can tell you that the best way to make a war palatable is to create heroes. And when you can create heroes and storylines that make people go, man, the soldiers are sacrificing over there. We've got to win this. We can't let their deaths be in vain. All these things that come from that type of a narrative makes whatever um, true reason why we're involved in this war, they can continue to do that on the side. You know, the cloak of deception. You know, this volume-controlled, media-controlled, manipulated narrative and having people who are probably more criminal- um, war criminals as the face of the, the, the oh, we feel good, gotta love our, our warriors overseas, that you're putting them out front and that's a, you know, hiding in plain sight. Absolutely. You know, these guys, you know, they're, I'm not going to name names because I don't want to get sued, but there are people who are prominent in movies, TV, um, social media, podcasting, who are frauds, who's whose careers in the military pale in comparison to what they say it is and what the media lets them continue to manipulate and put out there on the airwaves, fraudulent. And 
even the, the stories they tell about what they did fraudulent. And it's almost like stolen valor, but accepted stolen valor because they were actual men who served on the elite units. Yeah, it, it definitely, yeah, I agree with you. It seemed to be a big push, especially during the Biden-Obama time with all of the military cooperation with Hollywood. Uh, so many tentacles are shared with that. The, uh, the branding of the unit, the promotion of, hey, let's make money off the Trident, um, you know, went from silent professional to, to uh, let's write books and tell stories. And I couldn't believe that the, uh, certain missions were being uh, uh, detailed and, and shared out so willingly. It's, uh, it was perplexing to see, but I guess, as you said, you know, understanding what's, what's behind it and the connections, then you start to, it's circumstantial evidence, right? That's admissible in most cases if it, if it start tying in um, into the, the... But you think about that, just reason, why would they allow something to be told? The only way they would do that is if it wasn't true. If, it, if, it's, if it's not truly how it happened and you're presenting it, no one's going to know the why unless somebody within that unit that was there that day speaks up. And what they've done is they created such a layer of bullying and culpability. And, and this is my personal opinion. But you have to ask, what would keep somebody from talking? What would keep somebody from telling the truth? Uh, and if you saw, I don't know if you saw. I know, I know, I got an answer. A, a, a unarmored Chinook hovering above a uh, a small town that had just uh, undergone some serious attacks and things like that, making a big painted target. That that seemed to be, and that's still a common theme that those guys were set up. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. but the, the total destruction of an entire group of people. Right. But there's people today that are that are aware of you know that entire SEAL Team Six helicopter was all the witnesses on that one, but. There's, there are teams that are doing criminal stuff that are, you know, that they're not wiping out constantly Chinooks um, full of, uh, of seals. But I, I would argue that, you know, when, and I've gotten this from firsthand interviews with people who are still active, there are orders given to do things that are against the Geneva Convention. And I'm not going to go into specifics, but when you, when you participate even if you were following an order, you are now a war criminal by definition. And when you had spent your entire life working towards a goal of becoming a member of this elite fighting force, this brotherhood, this, this group of exceptional men by all standards, and you were then hoodwinked into participating in something that you knew was wrong, but it, oh, well, we're at war. So I guess it's okay. Well, the Geneva Convention exists for a reason. Exactly. So that you know, Hitler and people like him never can just roam freely and do whatever the hell they want again. And that there are some rules to combat. That it's not just a full, you know, whatever you feel like doing, do. And when you create an environment where everybody ultimately becomes a war criminal, that becomes leverage. And when you have leverage, you will use it to keep people silent because no one wants to go to jail. No one wants to lose all of their um, goals and dreams. No one wants their families to be embarrassed and suffer. So when, when you have the choice to do the right thing, 
in general as a, the right thing is to tell the truth or the right thing for you based on your situation, most people inherently will choose the thing that's best for them in their situation. And that's what we're, I think that's what we're seeing. And that's, I think that's the, the pattern. And that's what they do with, you know, blackmailing politicians. <laughs> you know, that's why you have the special interest groups. You know, you have, there's so many ways to control someone's decision-making and someone's mindset that I think it's the pattern that is used in every one of those is identical. Entrap, manipulate, put your thumb on them. Yep, yep. Absolutely. Well, Matt, I tell you what, you and I could probably talk for, for four or five hours on the podcast. Um, and I'd love to have you back on. I think this has been a, a great to hear your perspectives on that. Um, any Anything uh, in the future that you're working on that we could share with the audience and uh, where to get your book, website? Well, I'm always working on something. So we have, uh, with Max out, my, my fitness business, we have a new patent coming out new device coming out this summer which we're excited about which will um, be sold nationwide worldwide which is exciting um i'm looking to get out of police work so hopefully um the next time we talk i have that plan solidified um buying land in the middle of nowhere missouri oh wow i have a place where i can be free and and have control over my outcomes and not be uh in a place where you know i live in the people's republic of pennsylvania which is just just a little bit less than China as far as its communist control. And uh, I want to move to a place that's not that. And then, uh, you know, the podcasts were growing. I'm actually in the process of, of combining with a couple other podcast guys that are friends of mine that are, we're going to create our own network. Sweet. And uh, multiple podcasts on, underneath our, our platform and, you know, try to grow through that using, uh, you know, video content sharing and stuff like that and trying to get out of the traditional social media, YouTube um, censorship and, and go out on our own um, just so we have a little bit more autonomy and ability to, to freely express what we want to express because I found over the last four months that 90% of what I put up on YouTube gets taken down and I get put in Facebook jail or YouTube jail. So it's, uh, you know, things are, I, I still am very hopeful and I want to put this out there. As much as we talked about the negative shit that's going on in our world, I do believe that we're in a shift. I think there's a paradigm shift, a universal paradigm shift, where the collective um, belief in what is right and good is growing. And the more that we get people, you know, in the American and people like, oh, Trump's out, oh my God, we're all going to die, we're screwed. I look at it as it was the pathway to open up this ability to believe and be confident in what you believe and have that positive vibes being put out in the world constantly so that we can elevate collectively and regain our sovereignty. And, and I think that's what I believe is coming. And, and I, it's not doom and gloom for me. I'm very optimistic. Um, you know, and at some point in time, the truth shall set you, set you free. And, and I'm very convinced that that's happening. And as long as there's people like you and I that are willing to, to put out in the airwaves um, exposing some of the, the myths and the, the deceptions and the criminality and the, the wrongdoings of others, and then allowing those that are like us to absorb that and then give them the tools to go out and how do you then ensure that that's not happening in whatever world you're living in so that we can continue to grow and evolve 
and uplift the energy in our in our universe. I think that's where we're headed. And people can find me at mattkubler.com. Perfect. Well, Matt, thank you for joining us today. As a closing closing note, you know, I uh, great points. That's that's just a um, fantastic thoughts. You're right. This is a positive time. There's never been a, a greater time to be alive than in current events. Um, you know, if you look at the opportunities that have opened up for us for the longest times, we've been supporting those institutions, corporations. Uh, things that are using our money against us. It's time for patriots, 100 million of us, to network and create our own ecosystems. And the biggest things that we can do is support each other's businesses, support each other's efforts, and, uh, and really divest. The, the cold hard currency in this world is cash, and 100 million patriots dropping so Facebook uh, Instagram, all Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, LinkedIn all of those corrupted platforms that silence free speech would be a death knell for them. They, they have to, the libs would have to try to find a way to corrupt us. I mean, and that's the thing of what everybody needs to be looking for options. You all, just as you said earlier, you've got to have options. The greatest options right now is that for like-minded individuals, patriots to go form new networks, to form new social media sites, hosting sites. It's just limitless right now. And it's the best way to challenge the, the corrupted. So uh, once again, this is Don from First Team American Patriot Network by Patriots for Patriots. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Matt, we'd love to have you back on in the immediate future and uh, and hear more from you and cover some more topics. So God bless you, Matt. God bless you and your family. And God bless America. We're signing off from First Team America. <laughs>